You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Gun safety was a topic at a webinar this week. It was part of the University of Hawaii's Better Tomorrow speaker series. Chris Marvin is with Everytown for Gun Safety. We talked to Marvin to learn more about the group's origins and mission in light of the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Everytown for Gun Safety is the nation's largest gun violence prevention organization. Been around for a number of years. Started when Moms Demand Action and Mayors for Illegal Guns uh, merged together. Um, and of course, Moms Demand Action, which is the grassroots arm of every town, uh, started after the shootings in Sandy Hook. Um, and so as we look at everything that's gone on from then to now, we've seen honestly very little progress in gun safety, uh, despite all the hard work that's gone into it. But the movement is catalyzing a little bit now, and uh, we, we hope to see some movement in the in the Senate soon and some other, uh, other good things happening. So we're happy to be leading some of that work. And, you know, here in Hawaii, we do have very strong gun laws and a low case rate here. You know, we, we talk about this a lot, that Hawaii has such great gun laws, and the fact that we don't share uh, terrestrial borders with other states means that states with not as good gun laws can't sort of infect us and affect our gun violence and gun death rates. Uh, if in that in that way, often we say Hawaii should be a petri dish for the rest of the country, right? Like, what could you do if you had an island that just had really good gun laws? And, and we are a good example of that. Um, at the same time, gun death rates in Hawaii um, are increasing, have been increasing for, for a number of years. Um, I think between 2010 and 2019, they went up 33 percent in Hawaii compared to only 17 percent in the rest of the country. So that's a little bit scary for us. They're still low. We're still the best, right? We're still 50th in uh, in gun death rate amongst all the states. But, you know, that's sort of an auspicious characteristic because we live in a country, the only developed country that has this problem. And so we're the, we're the best amongst the worst, quite frankly. I actually was actually just privileged to work with a group called Vote Vets um, and the Vet Voice Foundation, who put a full page on the New York Times saying it's not gun control, it's gun safety, right? Because that allows gun owners to be a part of this and not alienate them. Uh, that good gun owners, responsible gun owners, they really do care about gun safety. And they buy their guns responsibly, right? They go to a a, a, a dealer and they, they pass a background check and they store them responsibly. You know, they store them unloaded and locked and without ammunition. And then you have, as you mentioned, the ghost guns, which luckily in Hawaii we have recently in the last year or so made those illegal, not only the manufacturer um, or sale of them, but also the possession of ghost guns is illegal in Hawaii. So, again, we're leading the country um, in, in those types of uh, laws. Uh, the ATF has also recently uh, made a change in their definition of a gun, which will help to uh, eradicate the ghost gun problem across the country. Uh, but it's scary because every time there's progress made on the side of gun safety um, and that work to really prevent gun violence, you see somebody else sneaking through a loophole or inventing a new you know, way in which to get more people guns. And at some point, we just have to address the fact that, you know, guns are meant to kill people and they need to be treated that way. And and for me, I come from the military and that's what we were taught over and over and over again, how to have respect for firearms. And so I think that if we just had some civilian laws that looked a little bit more like the military policies we have to keep people safe, we'd have a much more functional gun culture in this country focused on safety. You know, in recent months, we've seen more uh, shooting incidents involving uh, teens, which is a little distressing. So, you know, it's getting into the hands of, of young people, and we're not sure how. We saw some of those incidents uh, earlier this year in Hawaii. 
Um, I think a lot of times we think that we are uh, we are safer than the rest of the country, but we're not immune to this stuff. We've seen uh, a couple shootings recently, the one near the Blaisdell. There was literally one victim away from being classified as a mass shooting. Uh, that happened right after the mass shooting in Texas, I believe. Um, and then young people are often involved, right? These are the people who don't have, you know, the, even the fully developed cognitive sense to, to know how to treat a firearm. Um, again, the military takes a lot of caution when, when before they put a gun into the hands of an 18 or 19-year-old recruit. They have background checks. They've gone through training. They have supervision, et, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, there, there's a lot of accountability for for what happens there. But but here, a young person could get a ghost gun. Um, and it's Ill- illegal for young people to have guns at that age in Hawaii, 18, 19 years old. But they could get a ghost gun. They could get a they could get an unsecured gun from a parent, which I would actually guess is one of the most common ways that a parent or a, or a family member doesn't lock that gun up securely and away from ammunition. And, and therefore, that, that child is able to get it. And I think um, it was a shooting uh, up at the lookup at Round Top that involved two high school-aged uh, folks who, who had guns and shouldn't have. And that's our main point. We don't want to take guns away from responsible gun owners. In fact, we just want to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people and irresponsible people and people that might want to harm themselves. That's, that's really the goal of the gun violence prevention movement today. And is there uh, anything else that we can do as far as legislation to, do, to get to that point? Hawaii is, is always is always going to be looking for the next innovative legislative solution. And you've seen re- just recently us kind of catching up to some other states like Massachusetts and California and Illinois and enacting red flag laws and outlawing ghost guns, um, closing the, the, the dating partner loophole, which has, has to do with restraining orders and domestic abuse. Some of those things you see now being put into the federal bill in the Senate. So from a federal standpoint, yes, there is things that we can do. The bill that, that is that is going to go forth is probably the best we can do on a compromise. We expect to see the U.S. Senate vote on that bill next week. It could be law within a couple of weeks. And then, you know, then we need to get back to work, really, first and foremost, on background checks. Because background checks aren't fully going to be addressed in, in, in this, this new bill. And, and really, it's an issue where 95% of Americans think that we should have background checks on all gun sales. Between you and me, I'm not sure who the other 5% are, <laughs> but they're probably people who don't know how to pass background checks. They're probably felons and criminals. So we have something that America agrees on. We just need our federal government to work for us. Luckily, here in Hawaii, uh, we have a strong background check system. You can't sell a gun to anyone in Hawaii legally uh, without passing a background check. Um, and we just we need to see uh, laws across the country be a little bit more like the great gun laws we have here in Hawaii. And then in Hawaii, we need to focus on some of the other violence intervention opportunities that we have. And that that would be probably the next major legislative thing we could do is funding evidence-based violence intervention programs in part in certain communities in our island. 40,000 people a year die in this country from, from guns. That means that's about 110 a day who are killed. These mass shootings catch our attention, but they are the tip of the iceberg, right? So 19 children in Uvalde, Texas is a tragedy. Uh, but it, before that, before the week was out, another 19 children in this country were killed one at a time by other forms of gun violence, right? And so with 110 people a day dying, 200 additional people being shot every day in this country, yeah, it's an epidemic, right? It's absolutely a public health concern, anything that kills 40,000 people a year. And if you didn't, if the stats don't help you, just let me say it like this. Currently, the leading cause of death for children and teens in America is guns. 
That's pretty much all you need to know. Is that the kind of country we want to live in? Not me. We have been hearing from Hawaii resident Chris Marvin, who represents Every Town for Gun Safety, a national organization working to prevent gun violence. He took part in a University of Hawaii Better Tomorrow webinar on gun safety, which is now available to watch online. And joining the call to address gun violence as a public health issue is the American Psychiatric Association and the Hawaii Psychiatric Medical Association, which condemns firearm violence and mass shootings. Earlier this week, we talked to Dr. Leslie Guise. She's a clinical professor in psychiatry with the University of Hawaii's Medical School. And for some 50 years, she has served our community's mental health needs. She says all the U.S. has to do is look across at cities that have been able to reduce gun violence. She says severe mental illness is unfairly linked to mass shootings, which she says is often traced to ideology, racism, and perceived injustice. She notes that there are twice as many gun suicides than homicides. Dr. Geis is hopeful for a breakthrough on the logjam in the Senate over new gun legislation. There are common sense things we can do, and what the Senate is considering is pretty limited, but it's something. If there's some bipartisan agreement, that's progress in the right direction, and we're more divided than we ever were. You know, in your experience in this field, I mean, have you had cases, you know, where gun issues were involved? Absolutely. Since the research was shown several years ago that, you know, since we see a lot of people who think about, you know, harming themselves, they want to be dead, they thought of doing something, they have a plan, and we make our best assessment how much the risk is. We cannot predict violence of any kind, but we try. (laughs) We try. But I worked on Molokai for 20 years, one day a week through the state which is unique because a lot of fishing and hunting and guns are for subsistence, which is very unusual. Usually it's for sport or um, protection. But it was a patient I had, very complicated for a long time. I treated her for, for, I was a young, middle-aged woman for 20 years, but she had made plans and all of that. She eventually actually got better, which was a miracle, but a lot of drama and whatnot. But she wanted to get a gun. And I think we did have, I'm not sure if we had red flag laws at that time. We do now. But anyway, through the coconut wireless, I mean, it's a small community, communicating between the mental health center, the state mental health center and the Department of Health and the police department, the word got out that she was in pretty high risk. She'd made a will, she'd given stuffs away, she had all these plans, she didn't tell me, she stockpiled pills and all that. So I thought she was pretty high risk. So that was communicated and they did not give her a gun. She was very angry at me, but we eventually got over that. So that speaks to the issue of red flag laws, which states that have them, which is many, that people don't know about it. They didn't really know about us. We didn't know a lot of we didn't know a lot of things here, but you know, we got the we got the thing done. So we have to educate people about these measures and then make sure they're enforced. You know, there are some folks who after this incident in um, Texas are saying, why can't we enact laws that will do both, that will improve gun safety and help boost mental health programs to get the people who need help into treatment programs. I don't know. Thoughts on that? 
Very good question. Thank you for that. But we're always going to need more access to mental health. Stigma is enormous, and access to services and our health care system is tremendously limited. No, We're always going to need that. And data show that improving mental health is going to have an effect, not a big effect, or the most effect on gun safety, but always, we're always interested in, in increasing access to mental health and not using our jails and prisons as de facto <laughs> mental health places since the 1960s when they emptied out all the mental hospitals, which was a good thing, but we didn't fund enough community you know, services. So we're always going to need more mental health. And I have no objection to increasing access to mental health during the pandemic We've switched to allowing telephone-only contact, which is critical for people who don't have phones or you don't have enough you know, minutes on their phone or they don't have access to a computer or they don't have privacy or they, whatever, can't really function. They don't have insurance or they have responsibilities at home and they can't come in. So... Um, uh, Telephone as well as uh, internet connection to mental health has been very helpful for many issues. And so I think uh, advocating for more access to mental health is always a good idea, but it's not going to have an enormous effect from what we know that it's been done on um, mass shootings, which are actually not a big part of, of gun deaths. Most of them are just private people killing private people, usually who know each other, that we never hear about. So these mass shootings are what we hear about, but that's a small percentage of gun deaths. We want to decrease gun deaths altogether, you know, including the mass shootings. That was Dr. Leslie Guy's clinical psychiatry professor at the University of Hawaii's John Burns School of Medicine. She was talking about the need to address gun violence as a public health issue and the need for us to come together over gun safety. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omaui, okaholabe, ohavai. We have a story about a father and son who survived a shark attack off Maui coming up later in the show. So we're testing your knowledge about shark mythology in today's Backyard Quiz. Oahu's Pearl Harbor is home to many stories. You probably, uh, you're probably most familiar, familiar with the Japanese attack there over 80 years ago. The English name Pearl Harbor is actually not that far off from the name given to the natural harbor by native Hawaiians. They called the area Vaimomi, which translates to pearl waters, so named for the abundant pearls once found there. Pearl Harbor was also known by another Hawaiian name, Pu'uloa, or Long Hill, a name that can be seen in that area today. 
Pu'uloa in Hawaiian mythology was believed to be the home of two guardian sharks, a brother and a sister, who together protected the people of Oahu. The queen of sharks lived in what is now Westlock, and today we're looking for her name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nerit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NeritHawaii.com. It is now time for our daily dose of reality with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Nick Ruby joins us from our nation's capital. Uh, he is looking at the first district race. Good morning, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for so much for having me on. Yeah. So this congressional race, at least for the primary anyway, uh, has a, a newcomer. That's right. So um, our story today is about Hawaii's first congressional district, which, of course, is uh urban Oahu uh, and uh, Honolulu. And so the the district is currently represented by Congressman Ed Case. He's been there. This is, uh, he's finishing up his, uh, I guess, his second term um, after winning that seat in 2018. And uh, last election cycle in 2020, he didn't have a challenger, but this time around he does um, in the Democratic primary. And it is Sergio Alcubilla. Uh, who is a first-time candidate um, who has an interesting background. Um, uh, And when you talk to uh, political experts, they say uh, he does seem to sort of check a lot of boxes in terms of what you might look for in a political candidate. Uh, He is a public interest lawyer. uh, He is an immigrant. um, And he is trying to challenge Case from his left on a progressive agenda. Uh, For example, he supported Biden's Build Back Better uh, initiative that Ed Case was one of the few moderate Democrats who initially pushed back on that uh, $3.5 trillion spending plan before eventually voting for a trimmed down version of it. This, of course, upset some progressives, particularly those in Hawaii. And that is a big foundation of Alcubilla's platform. Well, I thought it was interesting your your story uh, brought out that uh, he initially considered running for LG, for lieutenant governor. That's right. So um, uh, Alcubilla was uh, working for the Legal Aid Society and is a member of uh, a number of different boards, and he works on, on a lot of workers' rights issues. And so he was protesting at the state capitol over workers having problems uh, getting access to unemployment uh, benefits. And while he was there, he just got this sense that nothing was really happening in state government. And he, he wanted to uh, decided he decided then to that he wanted to run for office and he wanted to run for lieutenant governor because he thought it would be a good position uh, for him to sort of become an advocate for people who he felt were voiceless 
uh, he had a conversation with a mentor of his, uh, Dr. Amy Agbayani, and uh, she convinced him that maybe Congress would be a better route for him. Um, of course, the lieutenant governor's race is crowded. A lot of uh, well-known politicians uh, are already um, jumping into that race. And this time around, uh, it is going to be Alcubilia against Ed Case. Uh, it's a two-person race. Well, it, it's interesting because, you know, I know he just recently got the uh, uh, teachers' union endorsement. Uh, and, and that kind of made people kind of sit up like, wait, who is this guy and why are they supporting him? Right. The Hawaii uh, State Teachers Association uh, has a recent history of um, backing candidates uh, uh, who aren't incumbents. Uh, they did it in 2018 when they backed a challenger to then uh, uh, U.S. Representative Tulsi Gabbard, who represented Hawaii's 2nd Congressional District. And they did it this year when they backed um, Alcubilia uh, over Case, um, in large part due to Case's stance on Build Back Better, which, of course, could have brought billions and billions of dollars to the state of Hawaii, including to help with issues such as childhood poverty. Yeah, and uh, he also um, uh, has gotten support, I think you said, from the ILWU over the uh, Jones Act. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's another area where uh, Case and Alcubilia differ. It's uh, Ed Case uh, wants to uh, reform the Jones Act. Alcubilia supports it, along with many other Hawaii Democrats, including every other member of Hawaii's federal delegation. That, of course, got him the endorsement of the, longshore, uh, the longshoremen. Um, and, you know, he also has the support of uh, Our Hawaii Action, which is a new uh, organization that's launched a nonprofit and has already spent um, uh, over $100,000 on ads that have targeted Ed Case over his stance on Build Back Better. The other thing that I thought interesting was his involvement in the Mooney uh, cult. Right. So, um, and, and this is something that I would encourage your listeners to go read about a little bit more in the story. Uh, but uh, Alcubilia, when he was younger, after 9-11 had been a part of the Unification Church, uh, which, of course, uh, many followers were known as uh, Moonies uh, because their uh, leader of that church, uh, Sun Myung Moon, uh, was a self-described messiah. Uh, they were holding a lot of uh, mass uh, mass wedding ceremonies um, and had, had been criticized as being a cult, but they also... Uh, we're spreading some anti-gay uh, rhetoric at the time, uh, which is one of the reasons why Alcubilla eventually distanced himself from the church. Uh, he details this um, on his own campaign website, which people can go look at. Uh, I also uh, discuss it in the story that's on Civil Beat today. Yeah, really interesting. But thanks so much, Nick. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. All right. That was reporter Nick Gruby with today's Reality Check. And you can go read that story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. 
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Guy Finley, author of The Seeker, The Search, The Sacred. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how we awaken our latent interior greatness. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Chef Robin Maiyu made history Monday night, becoming the first female chef from Hawaii to win a James Beard Award. She began her culinary adventure at 3660 on the Rise, cooking under Chef Russell Sioux and Padovani's Bistro and Wine Bar as a pastry cook under Chef Pierre Padovani. In 1999, she moved to New York City, where she gained more culinary experience cooking at Union Pacific and also at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in their pastry banquet kitchen. The Conversations Lillian Song caught up with the Iwalani High School and Kapi'olani Community College alum in her restaurant just as she returned home from her historic win. We cook what we want to eat. And so Emily Gucci, who's our chef de cuisine, and I, we have the same cooking sensibility where we really, really gravitate towards the foods that are all grandmothers want to eat, right? Like all the celebration foods that are time-tested and you have to eat over and over and over again. They become classics. They're classics because they're delicious. And our food is rooted in making sure that we honor the classics. And then we just like very, very, very carefully make sure that we see what is available. And then we make really prudent decisions of when we're going to sub in an ingredient because we still want to have that taste, right? That classic taste. So when everyone says, like, what's your favorite? I'm like, no, everything's my favorite on the menu. wouldn't have been there. Like, so it has to meet this, like, bar of is it something that we crave and it's something that we would like to eat? When people come to eat and they say, what, you know, and I get it. People are, like, anxious, right? They come in and they're like, oh, my God, we want to make sure we make the right decisions, right? So I always tell people, like, what are you craving? Like, do you want to eat some pasta today? Would you like to have a nice piece of locally caught fish? So it really is this care, that's how we cook here. The way you've designed FET, beautiful space, it draws you in. For you, this is your design, your creation with your husband, great reflection of what you and Chuck are. Please talk about your historic win, being the first woman from Hawaii to take home the James Beard Award. Speak to that. What did it feel like? It's, I can't even explain it. It's so exciting. It's terrifying, too, because I do think and feel that there's a lot of responsibility, even more so than I thought beforehand. So I am getting ready for that. And in my head, it's like you're floating. And I feel very proud to have gotten the acknowledgement. But I also am very, very aware that many, 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 many hands and people have contributed to why why this happened. And it's very humbling, you know, and it's also very uncomfortable for me. It's like, best chef. Just, I mean, I'm, I'm happy, but it, it's intense. I was mostly happy that my parents were able to make the trip. So this was in Chicago. Yeah. So like getting choked up again, but like, it's, it's like most of the time I like think about my parents because they've, they've worked so hard and they've sacrificed so much. And of course, like giving my parents like a heart attack when like, you know, they just spent their life savings on sending me to Middlebury. And then I'm like, Oh, I want to go to culinary school. And they're like, what? <laughs> you know, they're like, 
why do we send her there? She wants to be a cook. Oh, but it also speaks to the fact that it's like, if this is what our daughter wants, they're still so supportive too. So, I mean, that's a beauty, I think, of a supportive yes. family, right? Yes. And you're giving back to your family, making them proud, receiving this this award, this achievement really resonated for me when you talked about how you wanted to design a space, a restaurant that you wanted to work in. And also the quote where you said, why is our industry the only industry that doesn't have normal things? Normal things. Talk about normal that. Things. Yeah, talk so, about that. I mean, the reason Chuck left industry for actually, <laughs> and not to make this about my mother, but like when I met Chuck, he was a bartender, so he really left industries just to sort of like pursue graphic design and web web development because it was like a more kosher, stable job, right? And like, you know, an Asian mother's eyes. But normal things like being able to like take ceramic lessons on Wednesday evenings, but like you can't do anything. Like old school industry, you cannot have a life outside of the kitchen. The idea of having a set schedule does not exist. The idea of having any kind of work balance does not exist. Now, obviously, things have changed a lot over the last 10 years drastically. Deciding to move home and opening up FET kind of happened at the same time. And the whole idea of like, oh, you know, FET being our baby, it, it really... Just the whole planning, like, I have so many friends and my sister has twins of, like, telling me, like, this is what it was like being pregnant. This is what it was like three months in, you know, this is what it was like having childbirth, like, going through the whole genesis of opening FET. It, I was like, oh, my God, postpartum depression. That's what I'm, ha- that's what's happening. Oh, my God, like, amnesia. Like, if you have anyone who's a parent, right, they say to you, are you happy? And then you're like... I haven't slept forever. And you're like, happy maybe isn't the right word. It's more like, and I feel this way about that. It's more sort of like a fulfillment, right? Right. That has all of these highs and lows. And then like the moment you think like, okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. Baby sleeping over the night. Something else happens, right? That's what changes, shifts and every like, right. So anything, every single parent can attest to this, right? You're like, Oh, it's easier now. It's not easier. It never gets easier. It's just different, different, different stage in life. So you you guys are past the newborn stage, but I love your website, how, you know, FET is your Hawaii, Brooklyn, Hapa baby. And then also reading about your connection with Heyday. And now it totally makes sense that Heyday is your Waikiki love child. Yes. When the pandemic happened, of course, like, you know, everyone has their pandemic story. But I think that the biggest takeaway from us was that we were so itching to have people in our restaurant again. Like we did the takeout because out of necessity, you know, we realized that as soon as the mayor, the governor said, "Okay, you can have indoor dining again. We're like, "Okay, yes, because for us, we didn't open up a restaurant to do takeout. We opened up a restaurant to like have conviviality to have people come and enjoy themselves so we never wanted the food to sort of like lord or like the experience to lord over the occasion because that you know that that's not us right because you wanted to design a restaurant that you wanted to work in you have a rich lineage working under union pacific Waldorf Astoria Hotel. It's interesting because I I always felt like I didn't spend enough time in professional kitchens and like 
who am I to like open up a restaurant, right? So I worked for Restless You at 3660 for maybe about a year and then helped open up Hadavani's Vichon Wine Bar before I moved to New York City. I was pursuing a food studies degree, a master's degree at NYU with this idea that I was going to stay in the food industry, but not in the kitchen. But then I had to like, of course, work when I moved to New York City. So then that's when I started working at Union Pacific. And it was a very old school kitchen. I was the only woman. And I don't think this is a knock against Rocco. I think it was just de rigor at the time, but like every single day being groped, like, you know what I mean? Like I'd be cornered in the walk-in or we had these like steep stairs that went up to the kitchen. And so like, I, I had to like, basically make sure nobody was behind me. And it was really, it was really terrible and intense. And the pay was, pay was deplorable. And yet I'm at this like highly acclaimed three-star restaurant while trying to go to grad school, right? Trying to get out of industry. And I found another job at the Waldorf Astoria working in the pastry kitchen and which was working for John claude was amazing. But it was, it just made me think like, oh, so I am making the right decision of leaving the kitchen because it's just, the hard part wasn't even the hours or standing on my feet for like 12, 15, 18 hours a day. The hard part was the psychological part, you know, being told that you suck, but then also being propositioned at the same time, all like in the same sentence. You just have so much anxiety, again, not because of like the doing of the food, the anxiety of being yelled at, the anxiety of being sexually harassed, the anxiety of being told that you suck, the anxiety of not having enough money to pay rent because you live in an expensive city. And when you're in culinary school, they tell you, they, you know, they, they do the pie chart and they're like, when you open up a restaurant, one third of your cost is supposed to be labor. Well, I mean, that was based on immigrant labor. You know what I mean? That was based on labor where you paid minimum wage at best, most of the time under the table, right? And then people were happy to work like that because it was like 10 times the amount of money that they were making in their home country, you know? And then they would all like live, like there'd be like a lot of people living in an apartment and then they would like go to work, work really hard, save the money, send the money home. Well, that was like in the seventies and eighties and things just didn't change. And then, and then there became this like celebrity chef and then everyone had to work harder. And then like, Anyone who works in the kitchen knows that it's so labor intensive. Even the most humble things are so labor intensive. I wanted to make a place where people felt good. As soon as they walked in, they felt good. Right. Robin, you went from one expensive city to another expensive city in the United States. I mean, cost of living, high. But really, it does sound like, you know, you're very mindful. You want to retain. You want. So for you, your, your staff is like family. You're giving them time, you know, that work-life balance is there. You know, I, we try our best. We're not perfect. Right before the pandemic started, we were like, our goal was like getting 401k to everyone. And then boom, the pandemic happened. So we're slowly revisiting that. But when I say normal things, it's like what you said, like, hey, can I have paid time off? Right. That was unheard of for an independent restaurant. So 
for us, if you if you're with us for a year, then you qualify for paid vacation. You know, and I want to try to like change that. I want to make it like more like six months. And so there's just these incremental things that we're trying to like make it. You know, if you call out sick, be sick. You know, don't come in. Like, don't come in. Don't, and this was like pre-COVID, right? And so it was just this idea that like, no, we got you. Like, we got you. Like, we understand. Mm-hmm. You know, if, or if a child is sick or if you have to take care of a parent, like life happens. That was Chef Robin Maie talking with HPR's Lian Song. Maie is Hawaii's first woman recipient of the prestigious James Beard Award. Maie was in Chicago for Monday night's live award ceremony, surrounded by family and friends. We'll share pictures and a link on the conversation page of our website uh, later today. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health with open positions for occupational safety and health compliance officers, environmental health specialists, and advisors. Labor.hawaii.gov slash jobs. Help shape the future of Hawaii Public Radio. Nominate yourself for our community advisory board. As a volunteer, you'll represent your neighborhood and advise HPR on programming, events, and outreach. If you live on Lanai, Molokai, Maui, Kauai, or Hawaii Island, we especially want you to apply. Apply by June 30th at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, offering ways that residents from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai can help conserve water. Updates on Red Hill and other information at protectoahuwater.org. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to tell us the name of the Hawaiian shark goddess believed to reside in Pearl Harbor, or as it was known to the Hawaiians, Pu'uloa. According to Hawaiian legend, Pu'uloa was home to two guardian sharks, a brother and a sister, who were believed to be benevolent gods. They were cared for and worshipped by the Hawaiians living in the area. In turn, the guardian sharks aided fishermen and protected area inhabitants by driving off man-eating sharks. The brother's name was Kahiuka, which means the smitting tail, which he used to strike at intruders. He lived in an underwater cave off of Moku Umeume, known uh, today as Fort Island. His sister lived in a cave in Honouliuli Lagoon, better known today as Westlock. And if you know this legend, then you know the queen of the sharks was named Ka'ahu Pahau, the answer to today's backyard quiz. As the story goes, when humans began to develop Pearl Harbor, the siblings left the harbor's water, uh, taking the oysters and their pearls with them. And that's today's quiz. We stumped you on that. No winners today. If you have an idea for a quiz, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, Father's Day is Sunday, and among those planning to mark the day is the Sullivan family on Maui. 
Daniel Sullivan is a photographer and author of several photography books, including the upcoming Maui Mauka to Makai, which is slated for release later this year. While collecting photos for this new book last year, he was kayaking in waters off the Valley Isle with his then 15-year-old son, Tristan, when the two were attacked by a shark. They survived. But how did that encounter affect their relationship? The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Daniel and Tristan to revisit that event. Yeah, so it was a year ago, February, and I was working on the book. And one of the Mackay sections of the book I was, I was photographing for was about the whale migration that comes every year to Maui. And so I was spending a lot of time in the water and February, late January, early February is the peak of whale season here. And Tristan and I had set out on, it was February 2nd, in our two-man kayak to go out and, and see if, you know, we, we might see any whales. And so we, we had paddled out quite a bit, and we came across a pod of whales. And they were, you know, maybe 100 yards away or so, and they kind of swam past us. And it was a beautiful day. I mean, I just remember how pretty a day it was. A little further out, we saw a couple of dolphins jumping around. And so we paddled kind of, you know, towards in that direction. And they, they actually came towards us. And as we were watching the dolphins, a mother whale came out of the water with a newborn calf, just one of the youngest calves I'd ever seen. And an escort whale was right behind her. And they kind of, you know, just kind of hung out with us for a while. It was amazing. It was it was probably the closest I've ever been to a pot of whales. And the dolphins were jumping out of the water. And it was really beautiful. After a little while, we were like, well, we should probably give them some space. So we're just about to kind of back up. And they had kind of swam away from us a little bit. When all of a sudden, from underneath me, I got hit. It felt like I was just getting hit by a truck. The bottom of the kayak rocketed out of the water. Tristan, my son, flew out of the front of the boat. The boat flew out into the air. Everything in the boat flew out. And as I looked down, as this was happening, I saw the jaws of a shark on either side of my legs crunching into the kayak. So his mouth was on both sides of my legs, right underneath me knocking me out of water but as he knocked us out of the water his teeth sunk in and he pulled the kayak back to the other side with him so i actually ended up falling on the side of the boat the shark was on and i was still holding the paddle when i hit the water and he was dazed um he was kind of swimming around like mm-hmm. confused because i think at the time he probably thought he was going to be hitting a baby whale mm-hmm. i think he, he thought we were the baby whale so i hit him a couple of times on the nose with the paddle just to kind of scare him off. And as we went to get into the boat, Tristan was swimming out front. And he thought the whole time that a whale had breached and hit us because of the way we got knocked out of the water. So I yelled at him. I said, Tristan, it's a shark. And as we went to go flip over the kayak, we saw the giant bite on the bottom of the boat that the shark had actually bitten a hole in the bottom of the kayak. So all those teeth marks and holes, the water was just pouring into. So as we flipped over the boat, we both got in the boat. The boat started to rock because it wasn't as buoyant as it used to be, and we flipped over again. Mm -hmm. So we were back in the water. We were completely terrified. 
we got back in the boat. We float, we flipped it over again, but but this time so much water had, had flooded the boat, the inside of the kayak. It was neutrally buoyant, so it was just under the surface of the water. And I said to Tristan, I was like, Tristan, we're gonna have to swim for it. And we were really far out. We were over yeah. a mile out. Tristan, what went through your mind when that happened? Well, I had no idea it was a shark, so I was honestly just trying to get all of our stuff because we had, like, all of our camera equipment, and I was just trying to grab it. And then my dad was like, it's a shark. And then I just tried to get on, but it just kept sinking. There's all kinds of stories that people tell about what you should do when it happens. Did did anything cross your mind as to what you should do next? With me, I was just more trying to get in the boat and yeah. stay safe because I never saw the shark itself. So I never knew where it was. I, it just so like it's like feels like it's just miles beneath deep blue ocean. So I never knew where the shark was. So I never really had a chance to do anything like that. But I just wanted to get in the boat and try to get all my limbs kind of safe <laughs> right. so the shark couldn't get out. Yeah, I think the scariest part was the uncertainty of if it was going to swim up and, and grab one of us when we, we were right. back in the water. You know, the scariest part is, you know, either one of us could be hit and we're so far out that we would probably bleed out or something. Right. So that was that was really scary. And so the, the shark irreparably damaged your kayak. You're still a ways away from shore, so you've got to swim for it. And then a boat actually drives up close to where you were. And then what happened? That was one of the most upsetting parts of the day. We were swimming, and we'd been swimming a while. Our adrenals were shot. We'd been going as hard as we could. And this boat slows down, and he's actually between us and the kayak that's just under the water. So they probably saw the kayak. And we started shouting at them, it's a shark. It's a shark. Please stop. And the fishermen looked at us. And then they just took off. Yeah, and they slowed down. Yeah, they slowed down, looked at us, and then they took off. And we were so angry. Flashing up in the air, trying to, like, get his attention. We were yelling as loud as we could. And so I still to this day don't know why they didn't stop to help us. Crazy. At that point, we realized that we were still in trouble, and we still needed to swim a long way to get in. So, Tristan, when we're kids, we look to our parents for guidance and protection. In that moment, were you relying on your dad to get you both through it, or did you feel like you were also shouldering some of that responsibility? Um, both. We definitely knew we both had to swim back. You know, it's not like only one of us can swim. I feel like we were helping each other out. I mean, we definitely were together. We had my underwater camera. We both would grab onto that, and we would swim together. And in our minds, at least in my mind, if the shark came back, I was going to put that metal camera between us and him if we had to. But I definitely felt like we were saving each other out there for sure. Tristan, it sounds like you were able to keep it together, and you kind of knew what you had to do to get to safety. You know, we've been in the kayak many times. We've been actually had situations yeah. where we've been caught in the wind. And okay. We had to work together to paddle hard and just be patient until you get that in. That's happened a couple times. Yeah, that's happened to us several times when that offshore kicks in. But it was definitely the most present I've ever been or felt, I think, in my life. It was so viscerally real. And it went from this kind of, we were almost in this beautiful daze beforehand with the whales and the day was so perfect 
And then when the impact happened and when we realized that a shark was actually attacking us, it, everything became just so alert. Like every sense became very awake and we both were just very present and we just knew at that moment that we had to just hold it together and just, you know, it was life or death. We just had to, to swim as fast as we could to get in. And obviously you guys made it to shore in one piece. How long did it take to, to get back to shore? About 45 to 50 minutes, I think, because I remember I had my Fitbit on and I remember looking at it and then seeing about that much time. You know, it's hard to calculate exactly. And once you reach shore, what did you guys do next? filed a report with DLNR after we called my mom. Yeah, we saw what happened. We first got in on the poly. We didn't come in on the beach because we just took the most direct path because mm-hmm. we didn't want to be in the water any longer. So we actually had to kind of scamper up, and there's a lot of, you know, it's real thorny and rocky, so we had to kind of climb up the steep area. And then we got on the highway, and then we had to, to get back to the car. And the first call we made was to my wife, and the very first thing I said was, we're, we're alive. Just know that we're alive. Before I even tell her the story, I just wanted her to know that we were alive. And she kind of knew something was wrong by our voice. And it was weird. When we left that morning, she even had a feeling that maybe we shouldn't go. It was a strange day. Yeah, then we called DLNR, and we called the police. And when the officer from DLNR came out, the first thing he said was, just let me shake your hand because... I just want you to know how lucky you are. Yeah. Not many people, you know, get in a situation like you were in and survive the way you did. And then he told me that uh, you need to go home and, and pour yourself a whiskey and an orange juice, and you just need to drink the whole drink and then make another one. And he was right. My nerves were totally shot. I mean, the PTSD was pretty intense, and it did take weeks to kind of calm down from the whole encounter. Tristan, did you have a, a similar experience processing the event uh, afterward? I would say I was a lot more fine with it since I didn't see the sharks, so I never really had much PTSD at all. What I love about the story is the, the father-son aspect of it, and whenever whenever we have experiences like this, they can have deep impacts on relationships, both in a good way and a bad way. Could both of you share if you have seen that this experience has impacted your relationship? Tristan, did how you view your dad change after the event? Uh, yeah, in some ways. Yeah, definitely. Daniel? Well, I mean, I definitely felt, you know, when we made it in, like after we'd swam that whole way and we'd survived, it you know, you talk about in different traditions, like a coming of age or like almost like a manhood ceremony that they would have in a, in a traditional culture. And, you know, overcoming this, this near-death experience felt very much like that for me thinking about Tristan. You know, it yeah. was like he had he had just survived and he had completely composed himself and and been strong and swam really well. So for me, it was kind of like he had become a man through this experience. So it definitely brought us closer together. And, you know, you, you always have that, you know, your whole life. You know, you can always look back on that experience because it's, it's not a normal thing to have survived a shark attack. Any advice for anyone who may happen to have a similar encounter was there anything that you felt worked for you that people should think about should it happen to them? One thing is probably don't have a red boat. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're in a red kayak, just don't, <laughs> don't go out in a red kayak. But, yeah, no, I mean, definitely, like, for us, the thing that was most important was being present, not panicking, you know. And I think, hopefully, for most people, that is your natural reaction. I mean, some people panic, but you can't panic. You just have to be present and focused. Also, when you're swimming, just stick with, like, a rhythm, like, that you can maintain. Like, don't, like, sprint necessarily maybe do it in the first sense but then you want to just keep it because that's how you drown is just by like using all your energy yeah Tristan's a great swimmer he he, he is on the swim team here and definitely having him be a strong swimmer was, was a huge attribute but yeah we swam you know kind of you know almost I would count off strokes we would swim with like a cadence almost and we would swim like 10 strokes and then we'd take a breath and catch our breath and we'd swim 10 more just to, to keep making progress but not to linger because we really did need to get out of the water as soon as possible. It's an incredible story. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Tristan. Thank you for having us. That was author and photographer Daniel Sullivan and his son Tristan talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about how they survived a shark attack in waters off Maui in 2021. Daniel's new photography book, Maui, Maukata Makai, is scheduled for release later this year. Well, that is it for us today. Up tomorrow, we talk to the son of Mana'o Company's Kaulana Pakele, who is following in his father's musical footsteps. Got some story ideas for us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.